very good day to you. I'm Howard Feldman. This is the Synthesis Sunday podcast with me, Howard Feldman, and Dr. Anton Myberg. It is the 31st of January, 2021. Numbers are looking better, I think, but we're going to allow the doctor to tell us uh, to tell us that. Uh, in conversation with people over, over the last couple of days, I realized that uh, the surges and COVID responses is like electricity. When it goes off, you never think it is coming back. And when it is on again, you never think there's going to come a time that the power is going to cut out again. Dr. Anton Myberg, good morning. What do you think of that as an analogy? When, when, when the numbers are low, I think we, we honestly think that it's all over and it's never coming back again. So good morning. I think that if we're comparing COVID to ESCOM, God give us strength, let's pack our bags and go home because then we ain't mm. going anywhere. So let's try and keep the analogy away from ESCOM. All right. So, I, okay, I so we're going to keep it positive. Very valid point. I, I do think you make a valid point is that, you know, when we're going through the surge and when the numbers are high, everyone's nervous and everyone's panicked. But as soon as the numbers go down, people feel free to run into sort of the wilderness and drop their masks and drop their, their protective mechanisms. And that's a very important thing. We've got to be very sure still that even though the numbers are going down, we don't want the third wave to come quicker than it should come. So we're expecting the third wave down the line. We don't want to see like what's happening overseas that it comes in six weeks. We prefer it to come in eight to 10 to 12 weeks, if not at all. Right. Now, it, when we yeah. look at the, the worldwide numbers, there's currently 103,170,652 confirmed cases worldwide with 2.2 million deaths and 74 million cases resolved. The United States has 26.6 million cases with 450,000 deaths. And South Africa has 1,449,236 cases with 43,951 deaths and 5,297 new cases in the last 24 hours with a test positivity rate that's gone down dramatically to 12.8%. Wow. And there are currently about 112,364 active cases in the country. Current admissions are down by over 2,000 over the last week. And we've got about 992 patients in ICU with 572 of them being ventilated. Do we understand why the numbers drop so quickly? Look, we've, we've got to hope that the numbers are dropping so quickly because people are following the rules, because even though we don't agree with them, but the lockdown itself is working with the curfew, with the lockdown, with people being responsible, with people doing the right thing. That is why the numbers do tend to drop, because people aren't feeding the virus to each other and people aren't contaminating each other. Mm. What are you seeing in the hospitals at the moment? And, and one of the questions that I keep wondering is uh, age group, comorbidities, um, gender, race, are you seeing any, anything that indicates a pattern uh, with, with regard to people coming into the people needing to be hospitalized from COVID? So, you know, if we compare it to the first wave, it's a very different scenario. And as I always say, although the academics say it's not a worse scenario, definitely in a hospital setting, it's a much worse scenario. During the first wave, we saw much older people, people over the age of 80 with far more comorbidities. During this wave, we see younger people, and we're talking about 45 to 55-year-olds in ICU on ventilators who have minimal, if any, comorbidities. Some of them have only got one comorbidity, like an increased body mass index, obesity, and some don't have any comorbidities at all. We still are seeing an elderly population, but there tends to be a lot of younger people in our ICU, which wasn't the case during our first wave. 
So does that mean that the comorbidity concern is no longer relevant with the second variant? No, it doesn't. I'll, I'll tell you what it means. It means that people who think that they're careful are not genuinely careful. People who say, I'm very careful, I just, and this is what we hear all the time, all I did was I went to a family lunch on New Year's Day with 20 people. We sat outside. We weren't wearing masks. Isn't that okay? So that's not being careful. That's doing things wrongly. And these are younger people who are doing it. And, and this, I have to agree with the academics when they're saying that the younger people are going out more so than they did during the first wave. And they're uh -huh. sort of cohabiting with other people and they're socializing and they aren't doing things correctly. And I think that's why we also are seeing a different subgroup of people in our RCUs. Okay. A big conversation this week, of course, is ivermectin, because we had a ruling from Safra. Look, I didn't understand it, but I don't really have to. Uh, it, it, it makes, to me, makes absolutely no sense. I don't understand why it's just not given to the doctors to be able to make the decision as to what to use by focusing on it the way that they have and limiting it to the way that they have. In my view, um, I believe it's become a, a focal point, uh, which it shouldn't necessarily be. But give me your view of ivermectin. So I think in order to give a fair processed answer, we've got to take it one step back and say, how does ivermectin work? And ivermectin targets what we call your glutamate gated channels in invertebrates. And in mammals, there's a similar channel that could cross-react with ivermectin, and that's your GABA-gated chlorine channel. Now, the mechanism of action that we know is that it could reduce the viral load. When I say could, is that we don't definitively know, but this is what the thought process is. And by inhibiting the cellular process that the virus hijacks to enhance infection and suppress the host response, as well as interfere with the attachment of the spike protein, this is the thought out mechanism of how this drug works. But it's basically up to patients and it's their responsibility if they want to use it. Yes, SARPRA have given the guidelines for compassionate use. Now, if anyone knows what that actually means, please let us know because we still don't have guidelines as doctors what that means. We don't know the dosage, we don't know the formulation, and we don't know who SARPRA suggests should be getting it on what compassionate basis. Compassionate basis for a doctor means you've got to sign a section 21 form, which is about a portfolio of, of forms that big to say that you are taking responsibility for the patient getting the drug. And it's your responsibility as a doctor for the side effects that the patient gets. And, you know, as you know, I'm very skeptical about this drug. You know, I would love it to work. I really, really would love it to work. And it's very difficult to condemn its use with people who are using it when you don't know what the entire diversity of the side effects are and the consequences of using the medication are. But, you know, on a personal level, in my ICU, I've now got five patients who are critically ill, who have been using ivermectin. So that makes you think, okay? You know, some people might say, oh, but they used the ivermectin. They, look how much worse they would have been if they had used it. But you've got to say to yourself, you're in ICU, you're critically ill. Essentially, the drug then hasn't worked. You know, when you're in ICU, it's not that you're sitting down in a chair drinking coffee. You either are requiring ventilation or you're close to ventilation or you've got organ failure or there's dramatic things wrong with you. And the question we've got to ask with the ivermectin is, will it improve benefit or outcome? 
So, yes, I'm still skeptical, but I'm still waiting with bated breath for good news, and I'm hoping that we can get good news from it. There are 37 trials currently investing the, gaze, in the use of it, whether or not for prophylaxis or for treatment. We're waiting with, with bated breath, okay? And also, what I've seen with these patients in ICU is one of the major side effects is what we call diaphoresis and fever. So people get these uncontrollable sweats, drenching sweats from the medication and fever related to that, that could also confuse the patient to think that they're symptomatic from the actual infection. So we've got a lot to learn about ivermectin. We don't know yet whether or not we should be using it or not using it. Ourselves, and I'll tell you personally, I'm not using it. I'm not using it as prophylaxis. None of my colleagues at my hospital are using it as prophylaxis and we're not using it for treatment at this point, but we wait for further studies. Well, in, in fact, it's, it's illegal to be using it as prophylaxis or for treatment at this stage, isn't well, it? Well, there's plenty of people, unfortunately, that have been getting it from whoever using it at certain dosages, uh, whether it's illegal or not. And that's in the broader community, that's out of the community, whether they're getting it from whoever they're getting it from. There are plenty of people using the drug at the moment. But does, isn't that a case, again, for, for them to say, look, let's make it a choice of the doctors whether, I mean, surely you, sh you guys should be making this decision as to whether to use it or not, at number one. And number two, the, the, the patients that are in ICU, have they been using it illegally as well? Um, have they used, uh, is it under the supervision of a doctor? Have they had um, the, the right dosages? How does that work? So I think that's an important point you make. And, and I think the importance of that statement is there's no single treatment on its own that is a magic bullet for COVID-19 for SARS-CoV-2. Let me repeat that. There's no single treatment on its own that is a magic bullet for SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19. So all these people that have been getting it have been getting it, albeit maybe from their doctor, maybe from whoever. It's still illegal. It still hasn't been able to be given out until the SARPRA changed their the recommendation in the last few days, but we still don't have the recommendations on how to do it. So at this point in time, no one should be taking it anyway because it's still illegal and you don't have compassionate use because you don't know what that means. So yeah, we don't know the dosages. There's a, a decision if you should use a certain amount and we all know that what we think should be used, but no one knows for sure what the right amount is, whether mm. you should be using it daily, whether you should be using it on certain days, whether you should be have a break in between, whether you should be injecting it, whether you should be pouring into your gin or your whiskey because it tastes so bad apparently. So there's yeah. many questions. Well, you can't get gin either, but that's another point completely. The, and uh, ha have you seen any studies around prophylaxis? So they're still trying to do studies on the prophylaxis and the treatment, but nothing that's convinced us to take them working mm. on the front line with ICU patients that are extremely sick and being in their sort of front line and their front vision when they are sick in front of you. And as I say, still, we're not taking it at the point at this moment in time. Right. And, and, and you don't have clarity. There's no, there's no clarity. And, and that's the point, you know, it's the same thing as the hydroxychloroquine, you know, many hospitals, many pharmaceutical companies bought millions of rands worth of hydroxychloroquine at the beginning of this pandemic, only to now have the stock sitting in a warehouse because it's not valid. You know, many people bought hundreds of doses of azithromycin, the antibiotic to use with the hydroxychloroquine. And once again, it's not valid. It doesn't work. It's no single, single magic bullet to work like this. So, I'm not saying that it doesn't work. I'm saying mm -hmm. we don't have any idea that it works effectively or what the side effect profile is. And what we're seeing clinically 
is not a positive outcome as of yet. Okay, so uh, no doubt that this the story is is going to continue, but it must be it's unfolding. Yeah, yeah, it must be enormously frustrating for people on the front lines to, to have one hand tied behind your back, because surely if you could start trying things like this to see if it works at, and have it in your as you've often referred to your arsenal of medications, I, I, I can't imagine that uh, there could be anything wrong with that. If we had the clarity and the understanding and that we could take it forward and use it, we would go for it without a problem. Okay, uh, lots and lots of questions this week and let's try and get on to some of them as quickly as we can. Uh, I was sent a question in reference to a, a webinar last night where a well-respected uh, doctor in Johannesburg said that the, the cloth, not the cloth, the disposable blue masks that all of us are wearing. I even had glasses made to match those masks. So that's why I was particularly upset um, about this news, that, uh, that perhaps they are useless. Please tell me this ain't so. So, you know, there's always people who say certain things. There's lots of myths around COVID. There's lots of fake news around COVID. The idea is as follows. Those surgical masks are extremely effective if both parties come in contact with that are wearing the surgical masks. If one party is not wearing the mask, that's when you start having your contamination, your spread at a higher level. There is no reason for the man in the street or someone who's going to the shops to wear a K95 or an N95 mask. The surgical mask is effective. If you want to be more effective, you can put a visor over it. The only people who have to wear the N95, K95 mask, are the people on the front line, the people, the nurses, the doctors, the physios, the people who are working in the ICUs and with the COVID patients. And I even suggest to teachers who are teaching classes, they should be wearing K95 or N95 masks so that they don't spread it or pick it up from the chonter to be extra safe. But every other person should be wearing a surgical mask or a three-layered cloth mask, effectively using their hand hygiene, their social distancing, and that is effective and that will protect them. It will not be more effective to wear K95 for everybody because the surgical mask is protective and it's doing its job. And if you do things properly and you don't break the rules, you will be okay. All right. So that is very, very important. Uh, lots of questions around schools, lots of schools going back this week. Uh, somebody asking their, their teenagers got uh, comorbidities or a comorbidity. What do you think about sending them back to school? So I think the schools are very safe at the moment. They're following the rules. You know, as I said, most teachers will be wearing surgical masks and visors. Some will be wearing N95 masks and visors. If you've got severe comorbidities, you have the option to stay at home and do Zoom classroom. But once again, the children are separated. They're social distance. Their desks are apart. A lot of the classes will be held outside. The windows in the rooms are open. The doors are open. They're doing things effectively. And as we've always said, schools are far safer for the kids to be than to be at home or on play dates or in other environments. So just be careful, follow the rules, do things correctly, and hopefully you'll be okay if you follow all of these guidelines. Right, and, uh, and just send your kids to school with confidence. I think that's very important. Once again, as I always say, I'm sending my kids to school with confidence, with surgical masks, not with N95, not with K95 masks, 
and they're going to school and they're following their rules. Look, they uh, they they know better than not to follow the rules because uh, um, they're in the limelight. But uh, they're following the rules because they know what the rules are and they know how important it is if they want to stay at school. And I just want to remind people uh, to to get the kids into a routine, which means when they come home, let them uh, have their shower or bath, change then. In other words, pull your, their routine a little bit earlier, not at the end of the day, just so they get, and then, and then it doesn't become something to be anxious about. Uh, just make sure that, that they are um, as safe as possible. Yes, yeah, so I, think, I think that's very important. It's not uh, definitive that they have to do that, but I think it's important that they do that because it makes them understand and it makes them protect themselves better to know that, hold on, I've got to do my social distancing. I've got to do my cleaning. And when I come home, if I have a bath and change, then I'm also still protecting myself and I'm still thinking about it all the time. So I don't spread the virus to other people. Right. Okay. Lots and lots of questions around. And, and it's quite interesting because as we learn more, as we have different scenarios, so we have situations where, uh, where people don't really know what to do. Um, Unsigned says they know of somebody who's uh, sending their kid to school, but there is a, a parent or there's somebody at home that is still on oxygen from, from COVID. What must they do about something like that? Okay, so I think that's another very, very good question. And, and there's a whole fundamental issue of understanding what it means. Generally, we say that if someone's had COVID, the virus replicates over a period of five to 10 days. And then even though they're still sick after that, the virus stops replicating. So it's unlikely that they'll be contagious after that. A lot of patients have got what we call long COVID or post COVID. So they will remain on oxygen for a number of weeks to a number of months after having had COVID. Remaining on oxygen doesn't mean you're symptomatic or that you are transmitting virus or that you're replicating virus. The virus has already stopped replicating and you are suffering the consequences of the sequelae of the COVID itself, what it's done to your body. So if you've all been through your quarantine and your isolation, and yes, there is someone on oxygen, there's no reason why those children can't go back to school. So it's all about the timing of that. 100%. So obviously, so, yeah. if someone in the house is symptomatic at the time, got a fever, cough, short of breath, and loss of smell, all those symptoms together, then you would say, let's wait up to 72 hours to see if those go away before we can send back. Right. And, and the best thing to do is for, for that family to speak to their doctor. Make sure that, uh, yeah. that they have said to you, it's absolutely okay for the kid to go back to and school. And get clarity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and inform the school of that, because there is going to be another parent who is not unreasonably concerned and going to say to the school, look, I know that that kid's got somebody at home right. with COVID. At least give the school, uh, somebody at home with on oxygen, at least give the school the, the information. So that they could say to that concerned parent, don't worry, we've spoken to the family, we know about the situation, it's been that person, that kid's been cleared. I think it's important. It isn't a matter of, of telling on and reporting. It's, it's about everybody trying to be as responsible, hopefully, as possible. Here's another interesting question. My son um, is, uh, is in Israel. He's meant to come home. He had a test on Wednesday, the 20th of January, and was, and, uh, and was negative. Two of his friends tested positive, so he was isolated. On Sunday, the 24th of January, he tested positive for COVID. He's had no symptoms, maybe one day of very mild symptoms. Um, he's meant to come home. Um, obviously, he's going to wait for the isolation period. But what the father's worried about is 
sometimes you get continue to get positive results. What does he do in that situation? That's a very tough one when you're not dealing with a first world country, okay? Because in a first world country, let's say a country like Israel, they state that if you've had COVID and you're positive, then you've got to check for antibodies. If the antibodies are positive within a week to three weeks after having the infection, doesn't matter if the COVID result comes back positive, you've got the antibodies, it means you're not replicating anymore Wait, and so they will let you back into the country. So, so this is in Israel? No, but this is coming into South Africa. If you're going ah. into Israel, it's a completely different story. So now coming to South Africa, you've got to find someone in the Department of Health or someone here who you can explain the situation to and ask them if it will be valid if you can do COVID antibodies, which will be positive most likely or hopefully, if you can come back into the country with a positive COVID result. So you've got to go through the health department, I think, and then they can get you authority to go through the airports and all of that type of thing. But the problem will be is that if your COVID is still positive and you haven't got antibodies, then unfortunately you've got no leg to stand on until you get a negative result. And we do know that 30% of people still don't develop antibodies to COVID. Right. So the best thing for them to do is check, have the COVID test. Hopefully that's negative. If it isn't, make sure at the same time you're doing the antibody test. If the antibodies are positive, then at least we can maybe speak to the department here to see if there's, if you can get permission. That's, that's really the answer. Correct. Correct. Okay, great. That is, uh, because it is a, uh, I'm, I'm sure many people are in, uh, in exactly because that. Uh, we've, said, we've said this before, the virus replication, albeit low, you can still have dead virus in the system that's there and that's picked up by the cycle threshold and it'll give you a positive result despite the fact that you're not actually replicating contagious mm. virus. Right. And, uh, and Cheryl says, how we please ask the doc, the scouser, this, if a person in one household returns from overseas, should the entire household quarantine for 10 days? And, uh, and okay, she's also asking a question about the vaccines, but we're going to get on to the vaccines in just a moment. So, so regarding someone coming from overseas, the law of the land and the NRCD is that if you come here with a negative result, then you don't have to quarantine. To be strict and to, you know, especially when we're going through our, our surge and our peak, strictly speaking, it would be ideal rather to quarantine that person for five days and then check their, their antibodies or check their SARS-CoV-2 result on the sixth day to make sure it's negative. And that will be the safest way to do it. But uh, you can go for the more lenient uh, NICD ruling to say that you don't have to quarantine. But you've got to be careful, especially if you've got comorbidities and old people in the house that you're worried about. Right. And in fact, uh, before we get on to the vaccines, I wanted to ask you this question, which I forgot. Apologies, Sharon. Um, she wanted to know, what is your opinion on kids' lift schemes? Is it safe to have three or four kids from different families in a car? So it's safe to have one kid or two kids in the car because you can separate the kids. One can be at one window, the other can be at the other window. They've got their masks on, the windows are open. As soon as you've got three or four kids from different families, you're looking for trouble because they can't co-spread the viruses. Everyone's got different genes. Everyone's got different genomics. So it's better not to do more multiple kids from different families in, in one car. Right. Let's just talk vaccines. Where are we in terms of the vaccine? Uh, maybe give us an overview because that'll probably answer already a lot of the questions that people have. Okay, so we heard the, the talk from the Minister of Health and from the, the MAC saying that 
The vaccine is leaving India today and will be arriving in South Africa tomorrow. Um, over a million are you going to be at vaccines the airport? are coming here. Um, yeah, I'm there waiting with bated breath okay, to make sure all a million vaccines come here and we see all a million of them. Mm. And mm. already we're seeing excuses from government saying they're going to wait two weeks. They've got to check them. They've got to make sure they're effective. They're worried about some of the vaccines that are going to be broken. So already the excuses are coming that some of the viruses are going to fall off the back of the truck. Well, vaccines are going to fall off the back of the truck, I'm sure. So of those a million, it'll be really interesting to see how many of them are available. And this is the Chadox-1 vaccine. This is the, the AstraZeneca vaccine that we've been speaking about, which is an altered adenovirus to code for the spark protein. The biggest issue I have here is if they're getting 1 million doses, okay, and maybe a further half a million at a later stage, which we don't know when, and if we're waiting three weeks between the doses, does that mean that only 500,000 people are going to be vaccinated now? Or will they do a million people and then get another million doses to revaccinate the healthcare workers? Or are they going to be doing like they're doing in certain countries and wait up to 12 weeks? So we don't have clarity on that. And we, and we need answers from that. And we're waiting for answers from that. My worry is that the efficacy of the AstraZeneca vaccine is 65 to 70%. Unlike the Moderna and Pfizer ones, which are over 90%, 95%. And we do know that the Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine have said that they are efficacious against the variant from South Africa. Also boggles my mind. You're not allowed to call it the Chinese virus, but you're allowed to call it the South African variant. Mm -hmm. So there's a huge discrepancy there. So those ones are said to be efficacious against the variant, but we don't know that the AstraZeneca one is efficacious against the variant, and we're unsure that it is. So you can ask yourself the question, well, would me, would Anton Marburg take the AstraZeneca vaccine? And my answer is for sure. There's no doubt about it. Obviously, I would like to have the Moderna or the Pfizer vaccine. But we realize that most vaccines offer what we call incomplete protection. So there's a partial versus absolute protection. And so 65% of people will get immunity from the vaccine and 35% will get a limited or weakened protection from the vaccine. So some will develop a weak immunity, which will then make the consequences of the infection less severe. And that's what we want. We know the different mutations, we know the different spark proteins, and we're hoping that this will help at least somewhat. What's happening overseas with the Moderna vaccine is they're speaking about a third shot. So they're speaking about a booster vaccine, which will help against the variant of the, the South African variant or the United Kingdom variant, which is very interesting. So we don't know yet if that is going to be sort of given to us here. We're waiting once again to hear details because we don't have definitive details. And a lot of questions I've been asked is, if you've had COVID-19 and you've developed antibodies, should you be getting the vaccine? And the United States has recommended and indicated that you definitely should be getting the vaccine at least as a booster if you've got antibodies because the natural immunity that one develops after a natural infection is far less than the immunity and the antibodies and the seroconversion, that's the process where you develop antibodies, that will develop after getting one of these vaccines. So in other words, so that in, in short, definitely, if you've had COVID, you've got antibodies, you should still get, uh, you should still get the At vaccine. At least what a booster. A booster. What about Johnson & Johnson? So Johnson Johnson results have been a bit disappointing from what mm. we've heard. The efficacy isn't as great as we hear. And from what we understand, they might be looking at even a second dose 
over the first one. Um, they've come out with their phase three trials. We're still waiting here further. It definitely doesn't sound like it's effective against the variant. So we've got to wait for further information from them. Mm. Are, are the, is the department um, in contact with doctors like yourselves who are on the front lines and treating COVID patients every day of your lives around the vaccine? I'm going to just go quiet, quiet here because uh, um, do you have their number? I'd love to give them a shout. You know, we haven't heard anything. We were, we were given a, a registry to go through, which is not through the Department of Health, but it was actually through Discovery Health for, mm. for healthcare workers, just to register yourself and your staff and your nurses you send your stuff in, you don't get any confirmation, you don't get any answers whether or not you've been accepted or whether or not you're going to get the vaccine. So there's extremely poor communication between the Department of Health and healthcare workers. And, and do we even know who's eligible? You know, I was having a conversation with somebody who is a, a registered first responder, hasn't worked in the field for a while, uh, presumes that that uh, that he would be eligible, is not going to go home to, to register because uh, morally is uncomfortable with it. But uh, but uh, do we even know what what the criteria are? So I have to say I respect that person, whoever they are, because if you're not a frontline worker and you're not treating COVID patients, then leave the vaccine for the frontline doctors, nurses, physiotherapists, pharmacists, people who are working on the front line, going into the COVID wars, treating the patients that need to be protected first. We don't know what the criteria are effectively. As I say, once again, there's poor communication from the Department of Health. Uh, we've got to wait to hear. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it, it, it. I'm finding the the communication, and it's so interesting chatting to you because you should be. Uh, I mean, can can you estimate how many COVID patients you've treated? Yeah, a few hundred at least, at least a mm. few hundred, um, at a guesstimate. Okay. I mean, if you, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's gobsmacking how many we've treated, but we don't even know where we're going to get the vaccine, which facility will get it, where we have to go. Do we have to line up? We have no idea. So there's just no absolute sort of clarity in this, this matter yet. Mm, mm. Which I found, which I found completely, completely bizarre. Uh, Jody wants to know, and similar to the question I guess that I was asking you earlier, um, comorbidities and age, etc. Aside, do we have any idea as to why certain people die from COVID nineteen and others don't? And what we see is, is you know, if you look at let's say ninety eight percent recovery rate. It's therefore very unlikely that more than one person in a family should, God forbid, die from COVID, but we see it happening. So how does that work? So what we've got to understand and what we do understand and what we've said often is we still don't understand how this virus works. We don't know the reasons for certain things. I've got a family in here where the elderly mother, her daughter and her son are in hospital. I've got another family where only the father got the virus and they were in contact together the whole time. I have a colleague that was traveling to the game reserve in a car with four people and only the colleague got the virus and they weren't wearing masks and they were around each other the whole time. So we don't know why certain people's genomic distribution is different to others, why they're more susceptible to getting the virus or why they're more susceptible to getting sick. And that we'll learn over time, what is the actual predisposition to you getting the virus or to you getting more sick from the virus. As you said, we do know that comorbidities play a big role in this. There's no doubt about that. If you've got major comorbidities, mm -hmm. plus advanced age, then you are a chance of getting much sicker from the virus. 
but we will learn in the future. In 20 years' time, we'll look back and say, hmm, it was obvious. Why didn't we pick it up? Amazing, that. Absolutely amazing. Is there good news? It is great news. We know that the kids uh, at private schools are going back to school tomorrow. I'm sure there's no mother in Joburg that's uh, upset about that. We know the numbers are going down. And we can see people have been responsible. And we see people are doing the right thing. And of course, the Gunners and Sheffield United taught their opponents a lesson in soccer this week in pure brilliance. And of course, LFC decimated Spurs in a 3-1 victory was superb. And to quote, you work so hard to fix yourself, but maybe what you need isn't another tactic, another book or another five-step plan. Maybe what's really holding you back is the idea that you need to be fixed. Be safe, look after yourself, carry on doing what you're doing effectively and let's get out of this pandemic. Dr. Anton Marburg, thank you as always. This has been the Sunday Synthesis podcast with me, Howard Feldman, and Dr. Anton Marburg. Don't forget to uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel so that you know that you are alerted when these podcasts become available. Keep sending your questions. Thank you for your support. Be safe, be careful, be kind, and God bless.